UVA and Virginia Tech were both big winners in their football openers last weekend. How did the Hokies do it despite being down nearly two dozen players and a handful of coaches? And can the Hoos do it again this week on the road at number one Clemson? All that plus the magic of mustard and Virginia Tech radio voice John Laser joins the program this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 22 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and here with me as always, my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year, our columnist, Mr. David Teal. David, good to talk to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm excellent. Now, we both got the opportunity to cover games in person this past weekend, (laughs) and maybe that's part of the reason we're both in such a good mood today. That's right. I was at UVA for the Cavaliers' win over Duke. You were down in Blacksburg for the Hokies' fair to say, I, I think, remarkable domination of NC State. Before we get into what happened on the field, let's talk a little bit about everything else, everything around the game, what happened in the stands, what didn't happen in the stands, the press box, uh, no tailgating at either school. Lane Stadium, Scott Stadium, both limited to a 1,000 fans. Those weren't ticket holders. Those were friends and family of players and staff. They were on the pass list. So, David, what did you think of the atmosphere and of the operation? Well, game day traffic sure was easier to navigate. <laughs> that's for sure. And I and I can't say that I didn't enjoy it. Um, just driving down uh, 81 and then on to campus there on uh, Southgate Drive was smooth sailing. But it was it was just so peculiar, Mike. You know, you, know, you were you were in Charlottesville. You're used to that buzz and and people tailgating and music blaring and people just socializing, especially for season openers. You know, they haven't seen each other a lot during the spring and summer, and there was absolutely none of that. And what was most striking to me is I was walking up the sidewalk toward the press tower. You pass the statue of Frank Beamer. And and you know what a place that is for folks to congregate. They, they're all taking selfies and or they're taking pictures of their kids near it. And poor Frank, he was just by himself. Almost went up to him and shook his hand or something just so it wouldn't be so lonely. You know, throw your arm around him, tell him it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're right. And it, you know, the traffic's funny. It, it struck me. Uh, our friend Gene Wang from the Washington Post, he came by and we, we went over to the game together. And I take a circuitous route to Scott Stadium to avoid traffic, right? It's really smart. I move around some side streets I know and I, I started making that drive. And to his credit, Gene didn't say anything for a few minutes. And then finally he looked at me and he said, what the heck are you? doing and i said well i'm avoiding traffic and he said there's nobody going to the game i said you're right it's going to take some adjusting but david i thought once they kicked off um and certainly it's not the same and, and the energy and that passion of college football you lose out but i thought once they kicked off i was able to enjoy covering the game kind of like normal yeah i i would agree and it was it was real live tackle football and the the <laughs> only the only issue for me is i have worn glasses mike since i was in the sixth grade <laughs> And wearing a mask inside with glasses, trying to use binoculars 
those suckers that they got <laughs> fogged up a few times. Yeah, yeah, it's a, you know I'm a glasses guy during the whole pandemic because we're not going anywhere, so we don't need to get dressed up. I just keep my glasses on, and I threw my contacts in for that game for that very reason. So it sounds like I made a a good decision. Now to take people inside a little bit, you, you know things were different for for us media guys. Uh, Post game interviews, right? We didn't go down by the locker room to that interview room. We didn't get any time on the field pregame. Um, but I thought I thought UVA and, and it sounds like Virginia Tech. I wasn't there for that one, but I thought they did a nice job of of making it workable and um, making it so we could cover the game and so that we could tell the stories that the readers are looking for the next morning. David, was was that your experience in Blacksburg? Yeah, I mean, we were properly distanced in the the, the press box, and you were you had your game notes package at your at your seat at your assigned seat and the zoom calls went off without a hitch and you know you wrote your stories and away you went so i didn't i didn't see the the only difference was you weren't face to face with players and coaches afterward yeah very workable and he shall remain nameless but the only issue we had was one media member who kept coming over to me without his mask on and wanting to talk to me about things that were happening. And he had to be sent back to his seat a few times. And I did notice another uh, who needs a lesson in proper mask wearing because a mask was sort of over the mouth, but well below the nose and maybe not (laughs) not accomplishing the mission. But for the most part, and certainly from UVA's part, uh, everything was set up for success. Now, there were games played at both venues, and both home teams won by double digits. Let's start with the game you were at, David, State at Tech. And and to talk about the Hokies, their impressive opening victory, we're happy to bring in our friend, the radio voice of Virginia Tech, and certainly no stranger to our Richmond listeners. John Laser joins the program. John, thanks for being here with us. Absolutely, guys. My pleasure. Now, David and I were just talking about the atmosphere at the games, and the mostly empty stands, the no tailgating, and, and, and all the things that are odd this year. John, what was it like to call a game like that? Was anything different for you? I'll be honest, it was really odd in the lead up and just the fact that I could go to the stadium, set some things up, then leave and go home for a little while and come back and there was no traffic. And in some ways, it was quite a bit easier. But once we got to about two hours out when we're about to go on the air, there was just this void that you could feel. And I could feel it in the booth with our guys. There wasn't the general buzz and running around and just nervous energy and all of those things. So it was quite a bit different. But once Enter Sandman was over and was disappointing, not in the way that they executed it, but just in the fact that it didn't have the same energy. Once we actually got to the game, then it was, okay, we know how to do this. This is what this is what it sounds like. This is what it feels like. And, and it was pretty much fine from that point forward. Now, I don't know. I don't know if you get any of this data kind of in, in real time, but do you guys have a bigger audience because you know there's 65,000 66,000 people that can't be there now do you expect more listeners yeah I think you'd have to it certainly doesn't hurt our listenership I don't think we don't get uh, real-time radio ratings as you guys know just because they do that in time blocks of course and our time isn't consistent but we do get feedback on our streams through our tune in app and then also some of our digital mediums like Facebook live and those numbers were very high for the opener I, I know there was a level of excitement for football coming back so it'll be interesting to see how that carries forward throughout the course of the year if we don't get fans at any point but yeah to your question mike i don't see how it can hurt listenership john describe for our our listeners your perch 
up there? Are you are are you in Burnham enclosed? Do you have the windows open? How much does crowd noise during a normal season play into the broadcast? Yeah, that's a good question, David. We are way up. We're all the way as high as you can get the seventh level of the West Side Tower. So it's a great vantage point for looking down and seeing plays develop. And you're really over top of the entire field. Our booth is very large. So Mike and I are on either ends of the table up front, about 10 feet apart, maybe even more, 15 feet apart from each other. This year, we've installed a very elaborate series of plexiglass enclosements. We've completely closed off our engineer uh, because he's a little COVID crazy at the moment too. So um, I love our vantage point. It takes some getting used to when I first got here. You basically have to call the entire game through binoculars. But what I like about it, as opposed to a place like Scott Stadium, not to disparage that, but the fans are right next to you. So you get kind of that baseball type sound where you're hearing individual uh, folks maybe and what they may be talking about or yelling, where in our place it's just kind of that big ballpark, big stadium type hum that I think really adds a lot to our highlights. So we, we did miss that, but I thought our folks did a decent job of not going nuts like the uh, Ravens people did last night with the crowd noise <laughs> yeah. and overpowering us. Yeah. Now, one, one of the cool things that I thought Tech did was they tried to enhance the experience for people who weren't there, right? People on social media and, and things like that. And one of the features was a live look into your booth. So uh, one, how aware were you of the fact that people could watch you and Mr. Burnup? And did you change what you would normally wear to a game because people could see you? <laughs> no, you know, long ago when I first got here, uh, Bill Roth had it very buttoned up. We were a suit and tie crew and everybody was in suit and tie. It was the spotter, the stats guy, the engineer course him and Mike and, and that was because we had TV obligations after the game well times have changed quite a bit where we do a lot of that pregame and we do a lot of it digitally so at, at one point a couple of years ago I looked at Burnup and I said are you cool with pullovers and more comfortable slack because my feet are killing me in these dress shoes after the games so we made that change as a crew so to that question no I, I just wore a pullover and uh and some Nike pants to uh, that first game. But yeah, I was very aware of the stream because that's actually something that Learfield IMG College, who I directly work for, put in at pretty much most of our Power 5 schools. It's a, it's a pretty cool thing. Uh, pretty slick, three-camera, changeable angles and all those different things. Uh, and I actually set that up and installed it. And someone you guys both know, my lovely wife Renee, is actually the producer on that because she has a television background from her days in Philadelphia. So yeah, I was aware of it, but I will be honest, in about the second half, I kind of forgot it was there and uh, and was fortunate I didn't do anything stupid on it. John, this is not a, a function of the atmosphere because of the pandemic the other night. But when Mike told me the other day that you were going to class up the joint and, and join the podcast today, <laughs> I, 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 I got to thinking, how as a broadcaster and a crew do you guys handle a situation like happened at Tech the other night with the young man from NC State, Khalid Martin. He's down on the field for so long. They're backing up the ambulance. It's scary as the Dickens. The place, you know, only a thousand people, but still the hush in that place was eerie. Do you guys throw it to an extended break? Are you still on the air? What do you say? Yeah, it's a great question, David. And it's something I think that you learn, not that you want to have to learn how to do it, um, but through experience in my career, for example, 
when I was in short season A ball out in the Northwest League, we had a batter that got hit in the head with a fastball and was just completely motionless in the batter's box. And it was one of those old historic type wooden grandstand ballparks. They didn't have any good access point for the EMTs to get to them. So in an eerie scene, the EMTs came through the crowd actually and had to go through the door in the backstop to get to him. And then a couple of years later, when I was in double A in Montgomery, we had a comebacker strike one of our pitchers, uh, Darren Downs. I still remember it like it was yesterday. And the story ends well because he recovered and uh, eventually got to the major leagues with the Tigers. But at the time, it was so quiet. You could hear his fiance shrieking in the stands. Oh, uh, it turned out that they thought he had brain damage. He didn't ultimately, but he did have brain bleeding and he was in the hospital there for a couple of weeks and it was more than a year recovery time. So I've had a little bit of experience with that. I, I feel very good that Khalid Martin uh, is ultimately okay and was released from the hospital. But you're right because you go from full throttle, right? That was a nice Jalen Holston run. The Hokies were kind of mm-hmm. rolling with the football. I'm into my growling voice and it looks like they're about to put the game away. And then it's just completely the other way and football becomes not even a part of the equation anymore. And you saw that in the reaction from the players and certainly the crowd. Uh, Our job is not to speculate. um, And I was actually a little bit disappointed in myself. I thought the way that they were treating him the other night uh, looked like it was a neck injury. And in fact, it wasn't because of all the stabilization they were doing. But we never want to speculate because we don't know what's going on. The biggest reason for that is we obviously don't want to alarm anyone that's listening that isn't there, that can't see, particularly family members or NC State fans or or, uh, whoever the case may be. Uh, But also to your logistical question, what you try to do is you try to respect the situation and describe it. Uh, In this case, how Martin was laying on the field, who was tending to him what the players on both sides were doing, in this case, kneeling kind of in those semicircles. And then you give yourself a break to assess the situation and what it might look like. We've got Paul Roper, who's our network analyst back in Winston-Salem that we're fortunate we can toss to and he as a crutch, and he was just doing some scores, and we did take a break. Then we came back and, and did about five minutes during that eerie time. And, and again, we're just describing what we were looking at in terms of the ambulance coming out and the silence and all of those things. But ultimately, then, yes, we did go back to a second break, which is something we normally wouldn't do. That's that's the kind of thing that fans on both sides kind of feel the same emotion, right? Whether you're a state fan, you're a tech fan, you kind of get that lump in your throat and, and everybody's nervous. That was really the only the only kind of down moment if you were a Tech fan, though, in this game. And, John, let's go over a little bit of what happened on the field. And, and by now, everyone's kind of heard the backstory and Virginia Tech being down 23 players. No Hendon Hooker, the starting quarterback, uh, down a starting corner without their new defensive coordinator, Justin Hamilton, uh, without his probable backup, I would imagine, Tracy Clays. <laughs> uh, so, John, just, just take us through – this certainly felt like Virginia Tech could go out, could lose by 35, and people would say, what What were they supposed to do? They were handed a really bad hand of cards, and yet they went out and, and, and obviously won in double figures. What happened? Yeah, I'll be honest with you, Mike. There were only two scenarios that I saw going into this game because I knew what they were dealing with. Uh, going in. And that was before I knew that they were going to be without Justin Hamilton, which they learned on Saturday morning. And those two outcomes were getting walloped by 50 or what we saw, Uh, because I didn't think there was going to be any in between. I didn't think this was going to be a close game where they maybe played okay. It was either going to be a really ticked off, I can't believe how much we've gone through 
type of response or it was going to be a woe is me. How are we supposed to overcome all of this stuff? And to your point, you're right. That would have been justified in that. I mean, it was day by day, just negative news after negative news, pulling guys off the field for contact tracing, pulling coaches off the field for contact tracing. (laughs) No opportunity really to run a scout team or install any sort of game plan in terms of a walkthrough. So uh, I was obviously pleasantly surprised with the beginning of that game. But the one thing that I have said in the lead up to this, uh, and you talk about it a lot when you're discussing difficult travel or you know any sort of thing that's going to be fatiguing, a great offensive line will travel and a great mm-hmm. offensive line can mm-hmm. carry you because you can establish your own tempo in the game. And that's absolutely what happened. The tech offensive line, starting with that first play, the hole that Khalil Herbert had on first and 10, first offensive play of the game, as Mike Burnham said, you could have driven a Mack truck through. And I think that really set the tone for the entire game. They needed to get up big because there was going to be a time where they ran out of gas. And you saw that for about a 10 minute stretch in the second quarter. But then to their credit, you get that big catch from James Mitchell. You kind of respond to NC State grabbing a little momentum uh, and then just ran away with it from there. So uh, yeah, I went to the the stadium on Saturday, really not knowing if we were going to be very sad at the end of the night, which I was kind of expecting in all honesty, uh, or, you know, one of those nights that turns into a really special thing that you'll remember forever and fortunately for us that's what it was john you were you're kind of in my head because the first thing i wanted to talk about in the game was that offensive line and um brock hoffman the center who had to sit out last year the ncaa denied his waiver i think we've been through a thousand times that uh we're on record saying how wrong that that appeared to us from the outside but that looked like a group that has been waiting two months maybe six months to hit somebody (laughs) uh what did you see from that front five You're right, Mike. And I agree with you on Brock Hoffman. It's one of those things, though, where when you ultimately wind up having to be patient, it might work out even better because had you had Hoffman last year with some of those freshmen that played, I think you would have been a pretty good offensive line. But because you didn't, you had to develop Doug Nestor and Brian Hudson and Luke Tenuta. And now you see the fact that those guys, just as sophomores, have turned into elite level offensive linemen and you get to stick Hoffman in and suddenly you become a well above average offensive line, if not an elite offensive line. So again, we were all decrying the fact that he couldn't play last year, but now that he didn't, it might have worked out for the best because he's phenomenal as a center, as we saw, but you can also move him to either guard. Uh, Justin Fuente told me last week that Luke Tenuta of anyone on this team has taken the biggest strides forward, and he now sees him as a legitimate first-day NFL draft prospect more than likely. And you saw that with Christian Derrissaw, who didn't have a lot of time to practice, if any, leading into this game. He gutted it out and played the majority, but when he couldn't go, Tenuta just shifted over to left tackle seamlessly and handled it there. And the rest of the time that he was at right tackle, he graded out by PFF as the top right tackle in the country. So, uh, you know, you've got interchangeable pieces, uh, about one through eight on that line. You don't even have to start Doug Nestor if you don't necessarily want to. Lasita Smith has really upped his play as well. Uh, So I think this group has a capability of being special. And like a lot of things with this program, you go back to the pains of 2018 when you were getting shoved around on both sides of the ball, on both lines. Uh, It has been a work in progress and not to say that it's all the way there, but certainly they have taken strides forward. John, that, that, that bird, you mentioned that first play, Khalil Herbert's got a little burst to him now. And we saw it on more than one occasion the other night. 
Yeah, no doubt. He surprised me, David, with his speed. And I've seen it a little bit in camp, but there were so very few instances where the Hokies were able to go legitimate full speed over the last few weeks uh, that I had forgotten. But it was one of the things I'm, I'm more proud of that I said was, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore because <laughs> on one hand how many holes he had like that running yeah. behind that Jayhawk offensive line. So I'm sure that was a sight for sore eyes for him. And that, that hole was only probably rivaled by the one on his 37-yard touchdown run because, David, I don't know if you or I score there, but we at least get a first down. Uh, there was nobody on that side of the field, and that was yeah. Darisaw just clearing the way. So – uh, yeah, and then when he's out in the open field, you know, he, he can break it, as we saw. I didn't think he was going to score on that, and then he just kind of ran away from NC State. I think the encouraging thing for Virginia Tech is Raheem Blackshear had the touchdown, but but really didn't perform right. to the level that he wanted. And I guess after the game, he told Justin Fuente, Coach, I'm sorry, that's the worst game I've ever played at any level. <laughs> so well, he, he had cramps, right? Yeah, and again, he's another guy that didn't get a lot of practice reps. Yeah. So those are those are two transfers there in, in, in Herbert and Blackshear. I want to ask you about a third transfer who was in the program, sat out last year, Braxton Burmeister comes in, plays quarterback with Hooker out, and and John, it, it's it's magic mustard that keeps him in this game or gets him back in this game. Why don't you share with our listeners exactly how that condiment saved the day there for Braxton Burmeister? Well, it was interesting. We're not allowed to have Wes McElroy, who you guys know and our Richmond audience knows, down on the sidelines. So he wasn't able to actually go up to Burmeister and see, but he was in the stands, uh, which is where we can put him, which proved fortuitous because that's where Braxton Burmeister's mom was. And Wes kind of noticed that she was making her way down towards the sideline uh he didn't know at the exact moment what he what she had with him but might go forth fill the sin i didn't know that mustard helped with with <laughs> cramping or with hydration or any of those things but apparently uh when you're a football mom you know those things and, and whatever the makeup of mustard is it helped because he was back and then i was talking to him after the game and his hand was fine he was holding the microphone and i said you know did that happen on the sack and he said no it just Basically, when I fell on the turf, he, he compared it to one of those candy crane claws. You know, <laughs> he said it went into the clamp position and just wouldn't release. And I've never had anything like that. He's like, I wasn't in any pain or anything. It was just kind of frozen. And then once it got unfrozen or unstuck, he was fine. So, yeah, mustard to the rescue, I guess. Yeah, it's it's the salt in it. He he told us. He said that's how he he knew to to swallow mustard just because it's so salty, just kind of much like electrolytes. Yeah, I hate mustard. So if it was me, I'd be like, ah, Quincy seems to be doing fine. He's got three touchdowns. <laughs> now that's a great point because Quincy did do just fine. Braxton played well. How would you evaluate um, the quarterback situation at Virginia Tech? It it looks like they're pretty deep and, and good there. Yeah, I honestly don't know, guys. I asked uh, – that last night on Tech Talk Live, I said, how are you going to approach this going forward? And he laughed and he said, well, that's the million dollar question. And I don't think he honestly knows, quite frankly, until they get on the field today and tomorrow. Uh, it is a good problem to have, but at the same time, you also have to have a plan going forward. And he said, I was a little bit surprised that you guys didn't ask him that earlier in the day. And I said, well, because they've wisened up to the fact that they knew you weren't going to give them a starter for this weekend. Uh, I think at this point, you have 
the luxury of building Hendon Hooker back up, right? He's going to factor into this big time and he probably becomes your starting quarterback at some point once he's 100%. But I think you're well beyond the point now where you have to push him and rush him uh, and ask him to do things physically that maybe he's not quite ready to do yet. So I don't know if that means he starts and, and only plays a couple series right off the bat and then Braxton Burmeister comes in or Braxton Burmeister starts and you spell him with Hendon Hooker to get him some time. The one thing I do know, though, is the combination of this offensive line with Quincy Patterson's rugged running style uh, is very difficult to defend, despite the fact that you know it's coming. That quarterback sweep almost looks like a guaranteed five yards right now. So I think you'd be foolish not to utilize that, particularly in the red zone and in some goal line situations. So I think there's a role for all three of them. Again, I think Hendon Hooker is still the starting quarterback on this football team, but Braxton Burmeister is a guy that does not lack for confidence, does not lack for talent. And we kind of saw this coming too over the course of the last year and a half. Uh, So it's going to be very interesting. And I am not trying to play it coy, guys. I honestly have no idea what's going to happen on Saturday. Now, John, you mentioned, you know, the way they won this game against NC State, that there was a lot of emotion, right? You know, they've been through a lot. They've dealt with a lot this week, but really the last few months. So my last question for you is, can they do it again? Can they ramp that effort back up? They go to Duke this weekend. Is this, did we see how good Virginia Tech can be? Um, Can they get better or is it going to be hard to match that intensity uh, a second weekend in a row? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something I've thought too, Mike, is, you know, again, you got the team ticked off and came out and probably emptied the tank. I think there's two schools of thought on that, right? One is, hey, you might actually get to practice and might have some continuity and might be able to build up some conditioning. So that would naturally lead you to believe that you are going to be able to get better and perform better. And the other school of thought is you kind of left it all out on the field against NC State. I think I tend to lean towards the former just in the fact that you were able to play so many guys, particularly on the defensive line, where you didn't really have to exhaust anybody. Deshaun Crawford barely played in that game, had an impact. Uh, So I think it's going to be the former. I think what you're going to see in this Duke game, though, is that you're not going to be able to run the ball as dynamically as you did against NC State. It's not to say that you won't be able to be effective, but it's not going to be 9, 10, 11, 12, 30 yards at a clip. And I think what that's going to lead you to see is more of the diversity of this offense in terms of the short passing game, the intermediate passing game, that they really, quite frankly, didn't have to go to against NC State because the Wolfpack couldn't stop them in the run game. So I think in that way, you'll take steps forward, just showing more of what you're capable of. Uh, But again, uh, that's the concern that I will have going into the game too. Guys, just real real quick on Tech being ready for Duke, 45-10. Oh, yeah. No doubt about (laughs) it. Seriously. I mean, if it was anybody else – you know, maybe they'd exhale, but man, after what Duke did to the Hokies at Lane Stadium last year, I've got to think that that team is going to be putting it in overdrive on Saturday. Certainly the, the turning point of last season, that, that beat down, and that's when Virginia Tech made the move to Hendon Hooker at quarterback. Now, John, before we let you out of here, we want to have you join us in today's Take It or Leave It question, and this one's inspired by Tech's mustard field win over the Wolfpack. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. It is take it or leave it. Uh, The magic of mustard may have saved the day for the Hokies on Saturday. Now, in the pecking order of condiments, mustard is the gold standard, the king of condiments. Let's start with David. Guys, I hate all condiments except maybe for barbecue sauce. (laughs) So (laughs) 
I just am not a condiment guy, mustard or otherwise. So I am leaving it. All right, John. Well, first of all, I've been wasting Dean's talents behind the camera all these years. Listen to those golden pipes. I'm with David Teal on this, and my wife just heard that question, and I'm sure she's laughing because I absolutely hate condiments. She gives me crap for it all the time. I don't like ketchup. I don't like mustard. I don't like barbecue sauce. One thing, though, that I will put on anything is ranch, uh, and second for me is mayo. I can stand. I don't love it, but I will I will leave on your question. All right, Mike. <laughs> I, I, I will leave it as well. My favorite, and this is like maybe deep in the foodie woods, but I'm a spicy horseradish guy. That's the king of condiments. But unlike these guys, I like condiments. I like sauces. I like to spice up my sandwiches, add something to that. But uh, mustard's not number one for me, so I've got to leave it. John, speaking of leaving, <laughs> thanks for joining us. We'll let you leave. Safe travels down to Duke. That's John Laser, the voice of the Hokies. Thanks, guys. Now, David, Tex Romp Pass State was the nightcap. Earlier in the afternoon, Virginia opened its season with a 38-20 win over Duke. It was the Cavaliers' sixth straight victory over David Cutcliffe's club. And yet again, it was fueled by turnovers. UVA forced seven of them the game. Now, Cutcliffe is a good coach, a great offensive coach. And his teams, until here recently, David, they've kind of been known for not beating themselves. But Duke turned it over five times in the game last year, seven times this year, struggled with turnovers in their other two games. So first, was this great defense by UVA, the havoc they talk about, or was this something that maybe deserves a little less praise on the Duke side? Well, I think it's it's a combination of, of both, Mike. And Bronco Mendenhall has David Cutcliffe's number, clearly. I mean, Daniel Jones was a first-round mm-hmm. NFL draft choice, and how many times did Virginia intercept him? I think it was eight or nine times during the, the, the course of, of his career. And the Cavaliers tied a school record on Saturday with with five picks of, of Duke quarterbacks. So I, I, I do credit Virginia a lot. And, and Brenton Nelson, the safety, getting two of those interceptions. You know, we talked about on the podcast previously, a lot of folks forget he was an ACC Defensive Rookie of the Year a few years ago. Uh, if, if, if he can get back to full health, that back end becomes a lot better for UVA. You know, I, I have written here in my notes on my desk, praise David Teal for reminding us about Brenton Nelson. That was <laughs> on my list of things to do today because it, it was easy to forget. Remember, he had the injury and and missed time and some other guys emerged and, and played well. And um, I think a lot of people, did. this is a dynamic playmaker. Joey Blunt, who, who had a little bit of an injury at the end, but Bronco Mendenhall told us he'll be okay, um, is a dynamic playmaker. We've talked about Snowden and Taylor on the edge. So uh, this is a defense. You know, they came up with, with five sacks in the game. This is a defense that is not just making plays, making big plays. It's a dynamic group. Yeah. How many tackles did Zane Zandier have? 15? 15. 15. Yeah. So uh, a great linebacking core. Now, other side of the ball, David, let's talk a little bit about the debut for new quarterback. Brennan Armstrong. And let me start by making this point. I thought the Virginia coaching staff did a masterful job of getting him comfortable. Uh, Of his throws in the first half, he was 11 for 25 in the first half. None of his completions were for longer than 18 yards. And I think that was in large part by design right? Get him comfortable with some short throws. They ran the ball extremely well with Wayne Talapapa. I thought they eased him into the game. And then when they needed him in the second half, in the fourth quarter, when they needed some big throws, uh, he was up to the challenge. David, what did you take away from his first start? 
Well, I, th I think they did him, as you said, Mike, some favors with, with the play calling. I also think they helped him with the pace of play. Yes. Virginia went fast on Saturday. I believe it was 82 plays. Now, I, I know they had almost 35 minutes, maybe a, little, a, a bit north of 35 minutes time of possession. But still, I, I broke it down in terms of seconds between plays, and they were about three and a half seconds quicker on Saturday than they were on average last year. And I asked Bronco Mendenhall about that yesterday, and he said it was absolutely by design that Armstrong just kind of has that aggressive aggressive mentality to him and they thought this was would kind of play into that and it, it fueled his confidence and i think it showed yeah i thought that was a fascinating topic because in in basic terms it's sort of counterintuitive right you got a new quarterback you yes. think you want to slow down and but brennan armstrong they've talked about it all off season he's got this fiery go 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 mentality and i think it was about his comfort level and embracing his personality. And, and I've talked a bunch about uh, Jason Beck, the quarterback coach, and how he's going to have to coach Brennan Armstrong differently than he coached Bryce Perkins, who was very even keel. And I thought this was a great example, uh, smart coaching by Robert and I, by Beck, by Bronco Mendenhall. And David, UVA fans will remember this. When Bronco was hired, he talked about going faster than anyone's ever gone before. He had an assistant coach standing over the ball in practice with a stopwatch to figure out how fast they could go. Now, they dialed it back big time because they figured it wasn't working. But those notes, those binders <laughs> like Bronco keeps, uh, yeah. they're still there in his office. And if this fits the personality of this year's team, I don't think we've seen the last of the up-tempo. No, nor, nor do I. But what I'm curious about, Mike, is whether we see it Saturday <laughs> at, at Death Valley because I'm not quite sure you want to push pace against that crowd. There are people you want to race and there are people you don't. And number one Clemson is probably one of those you don't. The Tigers absolutely blasted UVA in last year's ACC title game, put up 62 points and the Virginia players and coaches, they've talked a lot about what they learned from that experience. Here's Virginia coach Bronco Mendenhall speaking to that point on Monday. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to be able to get a chance to, to play Clemson again. Having earned the chance to play them in the ACC championship game last year, it just accelerated our program. It exposed efficiencies. We learned so many things about that setting, that stage, that opponent. We're anxious to learn and apply and and, and improve from uh, what we showed a year ago. David, any reason to think things will be any different this time around? I, I believe there is reason. I, I, I do not envision Clemson hanging 62 on, on UVA. That, that defense, by the time the Cavaliers got to Charlotte last season, the first Saturday, December, that defense was done. They were so banged up, so gassed. They just snapped that 15-year losing streak against Virginia Tech. Hey, I know they were playing for a championship, but they were on their last legs. And conversely, I think they're going to be fresh this week and just far better. Now, might they give up 30 or 40? Yeah, Clemson scores 30 or 40 <laughs> against everybody. But 
62 no and if armstrong can somehow get that running game going again and if he and lavelle davis jr that big six seven freshman talking about a nice security blanket if they can hook up a couple times you know maybe it's interesting for them. yeah i don't know what the final point totals will be but i think this game should be more competitive certainly than that acc title game was um, and we saw virginia you know come back from that beating and play more competitive football against Florida in the Orange Bowl. Mm -hmm. The defensive players, Nick Grant, we spoke to this week, they said it's part of the process, right? That the unbroken growth of the program, they got whacked by Clemson. They learned from it. They applied those lessons. They were better against Florida. They've applied more lessons. They should be better against Clemson. What does that translate to? We'll see, but that does bring us nicely to this week's edition of Who You Got? Thanks, Mike. It is who you got. Tech is favored over Duke, and Clemson is picked to win big over UVA this weekend. Which underdog has a better chance of making things interesting, Duke or UVA? Who you got? Let's start with Mike. You know, I'm going to take the not obvious answer here. I think it's Virginia. Um, Part of that is I was very unimpressed and underwhelmed by Duke. I know their defense has been good this year, but I just didn't see a lot of paths for Duke to to being uh, a better football team. I I think they're going to struggle this year. I think UVA's defense is going to make this interesting. Now, when I say interesting, I mean keeping it within a touchdown or two for most of the game, which the way Clemson has been boat racing people the last few years, that's interesting. And and somebody threatening Clemson in in any manner is interesting. So uh, with the way we worded it, I'm going to say UVA has a chance to make things more interesting on Saturday night. Mike, I'm going to agree with you. Um, I, too, have been (laughs) underwhelmed by Duke. And as as we talked with uh, with John Laser about during our previous segment, I think the Hokies have very fresh memories of that forty five ten beatdown from Duke last season in Blacksburg, and I think that's going to just really fuel them on Saturday. I know Duke is unlikely to turn it over seven times again, but I think Virginia Tech is going to take care of business, and Clemson might as well, but I just think, as you do, that the Cavaliers have a better chance to keep things interesting into the third quarter and perhaps beyond. Yeah, so we're we're down on Duke, but David, are we as down on Duke as we are on Florida State? Because man, that FSU Miami, that Sunshine rivalry, that's given us some great great games over the years. Saturday was not one of them. The Hurricanes just whipped up on FSU, which didn't have its coach Mike Norville. He's tested positive for COVID, but things are not looking good in Tallahassee. Fifty-two points, mm. man! Oh man, you, you just can't have that if you're Florida State, you're you're too good on defense. I mean, you got, well, I, I should <laughs> rephrase that. You have too much talent yes. to be giving up seven touchdowns to your rival. Uh, that just it should not happen. And I know Mike Norvell was not there having tested positive and all that. And it's a, it's a first year administration. I, I, I get all of that, but that if that's not rock bottom, man, I don't know what what else could be for the Seminoles. Well, maybe if they lose to Jacksonville State this yeah. weekend at home, but I, I don't think we predict that happening. I think at some point, like we've seen in, in some past years here with Florida State, that talent will win out and win some games for them. But uh, 
you know, I think it also speaks a lot, though, to, to what Miami is this year. And, and yeah, we're rightfully down on Florida State, but I think Miami's shown that, that they are uh, at least in that next pack of teams behind that Clemson, Notre Dame, and, you know, who's next? Miami might be at the top of that list. Well, let's look at Miami's schedule, Mike. They're off this week. Next three games at Clemson, home against Pitt. Panthers look pretty good on Saturday, don't you think? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Be- beating Louisville. I mean, not an offensive juggernaut by any stretch, but that Louisville offense can go, and the Panthers just smothered them. And after that, Hurricanes play Charlotte or um, play Virginia at home. Yeah, we're so going to know. We're going to know a lot about Miami when mm-hmm. next month wraps up. We're going to have a real good handle. Another ACC team that. I had high hopes for that we don't, I don't think, have a handle on yet. That's North Carolina. They won their only game. They had a cancellation. They play at Boston College, which is 2-0. Uh, David, are we are we still high on the Tar Heels? Uh, is it just that Miami's kind of passed them because they've played more? Um, what are we thinking about Mac Brown's bunch? Yeah, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they, they open the season. They, they dust Syracuse routinely. You kind of expected that. And then through no fault of their own, that they haven't played since. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm still plenty high on him. Sam Howell hasn't gone anywhere, and he's still got Daz Newsom to, and, and Naomi Brown to, to throw it to, and he's still got Carter and Williams to hand it off to. And you know, they they, they go to BC uh, this week. The Eagles were, were certainly underwhelming in in, <laughs> in coming from behind in, in the final minutes uh, to beat Texas State the other day at the risk of really irritating Virginia. Tech fans, that's the first time that Boston College has overcome a double-digit second-half deficit since... Oh, yeah. The Matt Ryan game in Blacksburg on Thursday night in 2007. You know, Matt Ryan went on to have a, a pretty decent football career for himself, is still having a pretty decent football career. So maybe that takes some of the sting out, but <laughs> I, I think you're right. It, it probably doesn't. There's probably some sting left. Now, this ties into sting that, that we've never seen, historical sting. Oh, yeah. We don't normally get to delve into the world of professional hockey, but <laughs> the NHL crowned Stanley Cup champion. It was not my beloved Rangers, uh, but there was a connection to UVA basketball. David, why don't you tell us that story? Well, the Tampa Bay Lightning won the Stanley Cup last night, closed out the, the, the Dallas Stars. And as I've learned this morning in, in, in reading up on, on some things, thanks to a UVA Twitter follower uh, who goes by Trigon1234, uh, the Lightning last season set an NHL record for regular season victories. Number one seed in the playoffs. What happens? They get swept in the opening round by the Columbus Blue Jackets. And their coach, John Cooper, who doesn't know Tony Bennett at all, but was inspired by the Cavaliers' story going from UMBC to national champions, got him a UVA hat, kept it around, took it with him to the bubble, and that UVA hat was placed next to the Stanley Cup last night or up in in Canada as the Lightning celebrated their championship. I think that's pretty cool. It is really cool. And that Virginia basketball season, I mean, we both lived it covering that team, but it's 
the gift that just keeps on giving, right? There, right. I mean, there, there may never be a year or a season where something doesn't remind us of, of what was really a, a magical run by the Cavaliers. And um, I don't know. And then so weird that it gets bookended by an NCAA tournament that doesn't happen. But um, it shows you that, that that story didn't just resonate in Charlottesville. It didn't just resonate in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It didn't just resonate in ACC country. It resonated every year where with athletes, with coaches, uh, with competitors, and I think with people off the court. So I think that's, I love that anecdote. Yeah, no, it was, it, it was great. And I can't tell you, you know, Tony Bennett um, told the story about how after they had lost to UMBC, a friend sent him a letter that the legendary Claire B wrote to mm-hmm. Bob Knight after Knight's undefeated Indiana team in 1975 lost to Kentucky in the regional finals. And it was just this letter that talked about embracing the, the defeat, learning from it, and getting back to the starting line and beginning a new journey. And Bennett shared that letter with his team. What he didn't tell them was in 76, Indiana becomes an undefeated national champion. UVA then does the trick too. But I've had so many coaches email me since saying, can we get a copy of that letter? Yeah. Because we want to use it to motivate our guys. These are high school coaches of all kinds of sports. And so to your point that it has resonated globally, you are spot on. Yeah. And it's why another reason we can't wait to see what happens here in November, hopefully with a college basketball season, David, but Mm -hmm. that's a topic for another day. (laughs) Yeah, we're getting way ahead of ourselves, brother. (laughs) Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts. Just find the RTD Podcast channel. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find promotional offers available at richmond.com. And thank you to John Laser for being our guest today, the voice of the Hokies. This show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again next week.